Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Pepys, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is writer Kimberly King Parsons, author of the debut collection, Blacklight, which was long listed for both the 2019 National Book Award and the 2019 Story Prize. And it was a finalist for the 2020 Edmund White Award for debut fiction, the 2020 Texas Institute of Letters Best Work of First Fiction Award and the 2020 Oregon Book Award. Parsons is a recipient of fellowships from Columbia University, Yadao, the Sustainable Arts Foundation. Her fiction has been published in the Parish Review, Best Small Fictions of 2017, Black Warrior Review, No Tokens, Kenyan Review, and elsewhere. On November 11th, 2020, Parsons will give a virtual reading as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program. Thanks, Kimberly, so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. So tell us first a little bit about your background. Where are you from? I was born in Lubbock, Texas, um, and I grew up an only child, although I ended up having uh, six step-siblings later. But as a child, I was um, only child in a, in a rural area. Um, and my grandparents, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents who lived in Kitty Quay, which is another even smaller town than Lubbock and Turkey, Texas, um, both of which are in the West in West Texas. Um, a lot of, lot of walking around in a flat nowhere kind of place when I was a kid and spent a lot of time alone. So how did you come to be a writer? How'd you wind up doing what you do? I was always a reader. Um, reading was really important to me from the time I was very little. And, you know, I read sort of when I was a, a little kid, I thought I wanted to write YA. I thought I wanted to write books like The Babysitter's Club or whatever it happened to be reading. Um, but then I would also read in my grandmother's basement. She had Reader's Digest and there were those, there was a store, a section in every issue called something like I almost died or something like that. It was like escape death. And it was this weird sort of, um, you know, there were true stories that are based in reality, but it was about people escaping some horrible, you know, it was either like a natural disaster or someone was like mutilated in some way in a grain elevator, like just crazy stuff. But I loved it. And I, I got really excited to sit in my grandma's basement and read through those reader's digests. Um, but I always was a reader. And then I loved storytelling. Um, so when I was a kid, being an only child, I liked hanging out with friends when I could. And one of my sort of roles as a young person was to be the scary storyteller at slumber parties. And so since I didn't have siblings around, um, I love this idea of having sort of people in my grasp and having attention um, in the room. And so I liked making people scream and scaring people. And I actually thought for a long time I was going to write horror because I was fascinated by it. I read a lot of Stephen King at a very early age, probably inappropriately early. Um, but always telling stories, always interested in that from the time that I was very young. Well, th those are very interesting things that you've shared because they, they cast all sorts of new light for me on the volume itself, Blacklight. Um, let's start by talking about the title of Blacklight. It's the title of the volume and it's the title of one of the stories. Can you tell us a little bit about that title, how you came to it and how you see it relating to the volume overall? Yeah, so, you know, when I was writing these stories, uh, some of them span back to like 2007, I think, is some of the earlier drafts. And I didn't realize I was writing a story collection at the time. I was just an MFA student and I thought I was practicing. Um, and I 
believed like a lot of writers that I needed to have a novel um, in order to sort of have a book deal eventually. And so I, I just was thinking of these as sort of craft honing. And, um, and when I sort of sat down at the end of this long period of time um, and looked at them, I realized that they all had these sort of common things through them. And one of that, one of those things was light, the way that light changes a room or changes a face. Um, the idea of a black light was always something that was appealing to me just because it's all of that stuff that's there that you can't see with your in the normal light. And so for a while, um, I was working with a, a friend of mine who's a writer and she had suggested, what about unseen in natural light? And I thought that's what I'm trying to get at is what's unseen in natural light. And I think it's actually from the same line that we ended up getting the title, which is, you know, when these kids go to this bowling alley in the title story, they turn on the, the black lights and suddenly there's this new world underneath. And um, all of the characters in black light are trying to get at the world that's underneath this world. And some of them are doing it by playing games. Some of them are children playing games or children trying to define um, new rules for themselves to make sense of the chaotic environment. Some of them are adults behaving badly, um, escaping with drugs, escaping, some of them are escaping with connections with other people. And so I realized that that was this sort of commonality that all of those stories shared. And the idea of Blacklight came at the very end, the title. In fact, the story Blacklight used to be called Fellowship, which was named after the, because the characters in a fellowship of Christian athletes, this program. Um, and then I thought, what if we, I, I remember I just called my agent and said, what if we just said Blacklight? Is that too simple? And she was like, no, that's perfect. And we'll just change the title of that story to Blacklight. And that's the one thing that really sort of um, is present in every single story is that desire, the furious desire to sort of escape the everyday. Uh, thanks for that. It's very, very illuminating. Um, <laughs> would you mind reading a passage from the first story in the volume, Guts? Sure. When I start dating Tim, an almost doctor, all the sick, broken people in the world begin to glow. Light pours from careful limpers in the streets, from the wheezers and wet coffers who stop right in front of me to twist out their lungs. People I once found gross or contagious are radiant, gleaming with need. The newborn on my bus shines like swaddled halogen, Harnessed to his tired mother's chest, he turns his jaundiced little face toward me, no matter where I sit. I've always been a noticer, but this tug from the hearts and minds and ailing bodies of strangers, this is all Tim's fault. How can you stand it, I say to him. We're at the movies in the very back row, the theater, I swear, full of hidden rashes and shriveled limbs. I tell Tim that even the Jesus screamer, the guy who paused through my garbage and sometimes shits on my front stoop, he is now incandescent, his eyes drippy with hope. It's too much, I say, beautiful shattered people everywhere. Is this what it's like to be you? We're too early, as usual. Trivia and local business ads flash on the big screen. The movie Tim has chosen is a comedy, a mistaken identity caper with a pug dog in a supporting role. Nah, Tim says and yawns. One of his eyes closes. I turn it on and off. Tim is a week into his internal medicine rotation and I have so many questions. I'd rather be sitting across from him at the Chinese place, dumplings on the way, listening to him talk about patient histories and lab data about how best to deliver bad news. I want to absorb it all, the lining of every wrinkle in his brain. But Tim is too tired to eat, exhausted from being on call, 
He picks movie dates because when the house bulbs dim, he can drift off. He thinks he's got me fooled. They're all so fragile, I say. I mean the strange heads in front of us, other people waiting for the lights to go out. Well, yeah, Tim says. His device vibrates in his pocket. He takes it out and taps on it. But unless I'm looking at somebody's chart, I don't really think of them that way. Tim's device flashes. He taps and taps. God damn it, he says. Give me a second. He steps into the aisle to call somebody important. I'm wearing control top tights over control top underwear. With Tim occupied, I breathe a little deeper, take a break from sucking in. An old woman enters the theater, staggers up the steps. She's a bright spot in a lank dress, one arm bandaged at the bend. Loud blood beats in my ears. She's every frail grandma, every elderly aunt I never visit, every maternal figure who has loved me in spite of my selfishness. I use my mind to help her safely up the steps all the way to Tim who has finished his call. Authority teams from him, even without a stethoscope around his neck. The woman leans in close and asks him something. Where is she? Is this the right place? Tim gestures directions, waves her away. She starts down, afraid to push off from the handrail. She shimmers, the type of woman who makes you heart food from scratch, recites the recipe while you eat. Tim comes back to his seat and sighs hard. That lady's dumb nose touched my glasses, he says. He holds them out, shows me a smudge on the lens. He's tired, a little cranky maybe. I get back to the heads. Is it like being a hairdresser, I say? Like you have to separate yourself or you'd be tortured by people's bad choices, awful perms? Maybe, Tim says. He uses his device to search for reviews of the film we are about to see. He reads them aloud. Tim has a voice that sounds like everything will be okay. It's a tone they must teach in med school. Rip-roaring, he says, hysterical, but with heart. Tim's breathing slows during the previews. He's snoring a little by the opening credits. I lean into him, pose his hot arm around my shoulder. I put my hand into our bucket of slippery popcorn. I don't tell Tim that I find movies in the theater confusing. The giant stars and their giant mouths are unsettling. The background actors unconvincing, living life with too much zeal. But I like going to the movies. I like plush seats and frigid air, all the dark snacking. When I lose track of the plot, I lean away from sleeping Tim and reach into my huge floppy purse. I feel around for contraband, one of the secret tall boys I picked up at the gas station. On screen, a bank teller insults the leading man while the dog pisses in a potted plant. I look at the descending theater heads and some of them start to flicker. I see a tiny black tunnel spiraling through one guy, his brain tissue eaten away and peppery in places. I guzzle the tall boy through a car chase and a madcap karate fight. I watch the sick, sparkly heads and hope these people can make peace with what's happening to them. I know there's nothing to be afraid of. Death is just a countdown to the calm. But I'm doing that thing where I can't pull the oxygen from the air, where everything I look at gets smeary at the edges. I drink and drink and focus on the threads coming together on screen. The leading man is vindicated. The pug wears sunglasses and drives a car, its little paws on the steering wheel. I pop tall boy too. Tim's mouth falls open. Awesome. Thank you so much for that. Um, there's so many things to ask you about uh, your writing, about that story, about what you just read. Let me start with um, uh, the first sentence. So one of the things that struck me when I was reading the volume is your first sentences. You have a gift for first sentences. 
uh, when I start dating Tim and almost doctor, all the sick, broken people in the world begin to glow. Say something about why first sentences are important to you and how you come to your first sentences. So I think it's one of the things, I, I love short fiction um, primarily, in fact, I would say. I, I always read, uh, sh short stories were the, my gateway into literature. And I noticed that there's something about the compression and intensity of opening paragraphs. Um, because you have such a limited amount of time to sort of charm your reader and make them love you, make them understand where you're going. I think you have to, you, you know, in, in a novel, sometimes you can save things. You can sort of wait a while or pace things out. And I think in a short story, you really have to have to spend it all right away. And so for me, the way that I know I even have a story at all is that I have a first line. And in that first line, the first line is sort of the seed for the rest of the story. So every single thing goes back to that, whether it goes back literally or whether it's sort of in a, in, in a metaphorical way or there's some, some connection in some way, whether it's a, a, a sort of window into a voice or a window into a situation or a feeling, but that first sentence has to be right. And granted, this is all my, based on my own internal logic and gut feelings. So, um, but I feel as though I don't have a story until I have that first line right. And then everything can come out. And so when I came to that line, I knew so much about the narrator and about Tim, uh, her boy, you know, the almost doctor, whoever he was at that point. Um, I knew about the way that she viewed the world, what she valued in the world, the sort of lens with which she saw everything. And so as soon as I had that line, I thought, okay, I think I can, can keep going with this. Um, but until, you know, I really do write sort of chronologically. And I know that a lot of people don't, um, you know, they sort of, some people do some like some of my students I've seen they'll have several pages of throat clearing and then they kind of get into the voice but for me I I kind of feel like what I have are a thousand bad sentences and um and then one that works and then I think okay now I'm in business I'm going to try to see what's going on in the rest of the of the story um so it's just a little it's almost like looking through a keyhole or something it's like okay I can finally see through and now I'm going to start to say who is this narrator who are they talking to where are they What's the situation? What's the scenario? But always going back to that first line and to that first idea. And in this case, it's going back to that glow. What does that glow mean? So you've, you've spoken really eloquently about first lines. Um, let's talk a little bit about narrators. So another thing that's striking about the volume is every story except for one is written in the first person and in the, in, in the present tense. And this, this combination of first person and present tense, I'm really interested in what, what's appealing to you about that point of view? I think it's kind of tied up in this idea of, um, of young narrators or of these, you know, these people who are sort of in these intense moments where they're figuring out who they are. Um, so I personally, I just like first person. I, you know, I can try to say why I, why I do it because I feel like it, it makes, a, makes things urgent on the page or it sort of puts you right in the moment. And again, it sort of feels this, there's an intensity to present tense, um, but it's really just that it's what I like, honestly. And so when I, you know, every once in a while there'll be a story where you find, oh, actually I think third person is the way in because I need to show something different. But I really find that voice is the key for me. And so voice, it, it's so, instant and easily accessible when you're first person present tense it's just let me tell you something and then the urgency is sort of baked in because we we get the sense that the narrator of course it's all a trick but the narrator is understanding or coming to terms with their situation in real time and a lot of times those characters that i'm fascinated by are young people or people who are changing in some way people who are on the cusp of some 
realization. And so it just tends to lend itself to, to first person present tense. Um, and yeah, it's the same thing. If I feel like I have a voice, if I feel like I can sit and listen to this person talk to me for a while, um, then I feel like I'm in business. And until I get the voice right, you know, whoever that may be, um, it, it just doesn't really click for me. Yeah, it's really striking. You also speak in many different voices, right? Some of these narrators are male, some of them are female, some of them are queer, some of them are straight, some of them are children, some of them are adolescents, some of them are middle-aged people, some are parents, some are siblings. Um, say a little bit about the sort of breadth of narrators that you embrace, because I mean, there are some writers who write in voices that are similar to their own, and you really have a range that you use. Thank you. Um, I think it's a, you know, it's always a struggle because you realize that everything is synthesized through your own voice, through the, your, your writerly voice. And so it's about sort of curbing those, you know, how would I say it? How would Kimberly King Parsons say it? And it's like, no, I, I really want to try to sink into this particular diction or syntax, like how this person would speak. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that's a commonality that all these characters share, besides this idea of trying to get to something below the everyday, is, um, you know, they're, they're outcasts in many ways, and they feel like they're on the outside of their life for whatever reason. And some of that's through no fault of their own in the case of children. Neglected children are neglected children. They're not, it's not their fault, you know, that they're trying to make sense of whatever kind of chaos is going on in their household. But they're, they feel as though they're on the outside of things. And then the other one I think is self-loathing. I think a lot of the characters are full of self-loathing and that, you know, it cross, it uh, cuts through any identity, I think, you know, um, self-loathing is for everyone, <laughs> you know? Um, so that whether it's, you know, a sort of well-to-do wealthy mother raising a kid on her own or whether it's, you know, a queer teenager, that idea, that feeling, I think it's it's just something that is, it feels universal to me. And it's also, I'm always the most interested in the character who feels like the screw up. I'm never interested in the character who feels like they have it together. I want the person who thinks that they are the worst person in the story. They believe they're the worst person in the story, whether or not it's true. Um, I'm always gravitating towards that rather than the good people, you know, whatever that means, people who have their act together, I'm not as interested in them. What, why? What, why, what is it about the fuck ups and the and the damaged people that attracts you? I think it's just, I mean, I identify with it, first of all, just this feeling of trying to keep your shit together or look like you have it together when really, you know, we're all just sort of hanging by a thread most of the time or going through the motions of what we think we should be doing. Um, but I just think it's, they're, the, they're sensitive, considered people. The people who who are, who have it all, who feel like they've got everything together. I feel that they're the worst people. <laughs> I, feel, I don't trust them. I, I don't know that I can trust them. I feel like the people who are really worried about fucking it all up are the people that I, I gravitate towards anyway. And also it's just this idea of, um, you know, how do we cope with things? How do we cope with things that don't make any sense in our life? How do we cope with something as simple as someone who you love not loving you back? You know, how do you deal with it? And I'm also interested in those characters because some of them are really funny and they're really um, mean in a funny way or whether it's directed towards themselves or like in the title story directed towards like all religion or all of the town where she lives, this sort of weird seething hatred for something else when you can't possibly direct that hatred towards the person who doesn't love you back because you love them, right? Um, but I think it's just, yeah, I, I find myself to be always attracted to the people who are struggling. Um, and also anytime I start to feel nervous about giving someone a voice, like I think maybe they're too bad to give a voice, that to me is a signal that I should definitely do that. That's the person I should focus on. 
So there's a kind of um, literary ethics in your writing. So your your particular interest, you're not interested in the good people, right? You're interested in the bad people, the troubled people, the messed up people. But there's a kind of ethical dimension to your interest in them because you're you're no matter how difficult they are to be intimate with, and some of your characters are difficult to be intimate with. Certainly. Um, there's this effect that the stories have of creating empathy for these people, no matter how beyond the pale they are, no matter what weird, bad thing they're doing. Say a little bit about that. Why is that important to you? I mean, I think some of it, you know, it comes down to feeling like I'm on the outside of things like growing up in the town where I grew up. Um, I'm a queer woman growing up in a town that was not uh, open to those things. I grew up uh, a non, like a non-believer in a very religious town. Like all of these things made me feel as though I was on the outside of something. And so I, I gravitate towards that. I wanna have share empathy for those people who feel like they're on the outside. But then now being in this new sort of my own different bubble, right? I don't live in a small town tex in Texas anymore. Um, but that I, I still, you know, that's my stepdad or it's my uncle or it's my, it, it's, and some of their views are atrocious and ridiculous. And yet I, they're my family and I love them. And I feel that everyone deserves a voice. Um, and I feel that you can learn about yourself by how, how much you can sort of grow that empathy. Um, I remember once in a, I think it was a radio interview, somebody said, you know, when you're writing these characters, do you feel like God because you can make them do whatever you want? And I said, no, I feel like my the best version of myself, like a kind, I feel kind. I feel as though I can access people's internal parts and accept them in a way that I maybe can't in my real life, you know, that's harder for me to do in real life, but I can do it in fiction. I can try. Oh, that's fascinating. Um, I mean, it's, it suggests there's a kind of relationship between your writerly practice and the journeys that your characters are on. There's a kind of seeking that everyone in this volume is trying to do. Um, can you say a little bit about that? You said before that what's below the everyday, I thought that was interesting because some people might think of it as what's beyond the everyday or above the everyday. Um, what about that seeking, that yearning that so many of these characters have? I think um, Dennis Johnson said it really well. Uh, these characters with needy gropers, I think is what he called them. But these, I've always been attracted to those characters who are, I mean, being needy is not an attractive trait. You know, we don't, we don't often like that in our, uh, we don't choose that for our friends and family, people who need so much from us. And yet I find myself gravitating towards characters who need something, who need to have a space to speak. Um, so yeah, I, I think it all, it all just is part of the same thing, you know, it's all part. And the idea of going below real life or, at, because it's not really transcendent necessarily, you know, I don't think that these people are seeking, whereas like Flannery O'Connor would seek moments of grace. Um, these people are doing some pretty seedy stuff to get to their, to their relief, you know, and if that means doing drugs in a hotel room with a coworker or cheating or all of these different ways that people behave sort of badly, um, that's where I'm thinking it's below the everyday, inside the everyday, um, just something that's different. This idea that even, even if it's not necessarily better, it's different. And that's what they're looking for is just to feel a little bit different or a little bit more sort of in control of their situation. In the case of children, um, you know, the game playing, that makes perfect sense. You know, this idea of we're going to 
make these rules and maybe our rules are mean and crazy and um, not nice to other kids like but we're going to still make these rules because it makes us feel better about how chaotic other things in our lives are um but i really feel that all of those characters are playing games they're all playing games even if it's in a relationship it's all it's all about who's in control in the moment and a lot of my characters feel that they're never in control so apropos of that would you be willing to read us from the beginning of uh, the story glow hunters Sure. Glow Hunter, sorry, Glow Hunter. It was Glow Hunters at one time, so maybe you're <laughs> sensing the ghost draft title. Um, sure, okay, so this is the beginning. Bows more brightly lit than the rest of us. Charisma is the word. It's the reason her sneezes are so compelling, why she's able to walk barefoot everywhere and it doesn't seem disgusting. Or it's chemicals, maybe. Sneaky little messages her body puts out. The world seems to spread open for her. As a child, she clambered onto the small stages of her hometown. She was an Annie and a scarecrow, an understudy to a Tinkerbell. She's really not much of an actress, but she enchants people just the same. I've seen strangers stop what they're doing to watch her shake sugar into her tea. Bo says she can guarantee my first psychedelic experience will be exquisite. Set is short for mindset, and Bo says ours needs to be curious and playful, open to what will come. For the setting, she says we'll need to be somewhere soft, preferably with access to nature. The ideal is like inside a tent full of stuffed animals on a raft at sea, she says, but a car works too. You think mama might like this, Bo drawls. She holds up a truck, trunk, truck stop trinket, something lead painted and Texas themed, assembled by tiny faraway hands. She wants people to think we're sisters, the guy pumping our gas, the server at a donut place. I'm not crazy about this, but it's fun for her, something to break up the dull, gaping highway. We've been killing the last days of summer with drives through the worst parts of this state. Bo's mom is a free range type, but my curfew keeps us tethered. We've seen everything worth seeing and plenty that isn't. The bat caverns and the toilet seat museum, that big ass hole in the ground where a super collider is supposed to go. She'd never admit it, but Bo cares a great deal what mamas of all kinds might think. We both do, even this fake one she has conjured in the moment. Bo plays her games. We grew up on an alpaca farm, she says, this time to a cashier, a kid with a rat tail. We come from a long line of wool people, she says. I tilt my head and squint at her. Fur people, she tries. I snort. She tells the guy we've got yarn in our blood that we're on our way to see a man about a loom. I'm sister to too many already. Descending boy versions of me with buzzed hair and Adam's apples, sharp little jawlines. My house smells like feet and ball sack, and I can't sleep in a room that's quiet. Every morning when I leave, my mom says, have fun, the implication being that she can't, so I might as well. I can tell the cashier is already deep in Beau's thrall, watching her lips for shapes, not words. Actually, I say, she's an only child, and we don't know dick about alpacas. I'm harsh in my head, though I'm usually shy with strangers. I sir and ma'am them, but Bo makes me brave. Jeff told me, no matter how hot she is, someone somewhere is sick of her shit. I was calm when he said it, or I'd tried to be. It was the first time I'd been inside his house in so long. His particular circumstance seemed to warrant a visit, but I'd mostly come to check on Linda, his mom, to see how his fuck up was affecting her. I was disappointed that she was at work, Jealous of the customers who got to see her kind face bask in her warmth. 
Jeff and I sat on opposite ends of his couch, but were in the same helicopter on screen, blowing stuff up with our swivel M60s. His phone kept buzzing in his pocket, and we both knew it was Bo, frantic, on the other end. That sounds like men's rights garbage, I said. I could feel him staring, but I focused on our strategy, destroying enemy health packets we'd found hidden in a culvert. Men, women, whatever, Jeff said, so smug. Because you know so much about relationships, I said. I shot up a bunch of civilian huts just because. People ran out in bloody pairs with their hands up and I shot them some more. You're so wise in general, I said. You've made some really great decisions. People fell to the ground and flickered, then they disappeared. My mom has been wiping asses for a decade. Her life is laundry and boxes of macaroni, lice combs and digging raisins out of the couch. She'll come into my room and sit on my bed. She'll touch my hand, ask how my day was, then nod off as I answer. I can't even blame her for it. We're twins, Bo says, if you can't tell. I say, we're not. It's just mean to invite the comparison. Who can beat that bone structure? Imagine me blonde, she says to the rat tail kid. She puts her head against my head, pulls the veil of my lank hair across her face. Blonde sounds better than what I've got. Khaki is more apt. Wait, she says. She covers her dark eyebrows with her fingers. Stupid, I say, laughing, batting her hand away. Stop it. The last thing I want is to be related to Bo. I want her to tell the truth to this cashier, make him fuck off forever. But what Bo and I have going on, this electric something, I'm not sure either of us knows exactly what to call it. And the, the power of that mysterious something, that so many of the characters are after that, that mysterious something. They don't know what to call it or how to get it, uh, that yearning. Yeah, the groping, the needy groping souls, yeah. <laughs> so you, you spoke earlier about um, where you grew up in, in Texas and um, obviously, you've already explained the ways in which that experience shapes you as a writer. Do you think of yourself as a Southern writer? And if you do, what does that mean to you? I mean, I certainly can't seem to stop writing about the South. <laughs> I, I think Texas is sort of strange. Texas doesn't consider itself the South. It's like its own weird country. Um, but I do consider myself a Texas writer. Um, you know, I moved to New York and lived there for 13 years, and yet and now I live in Portland, Oregon, like, but, and yet I still can't seem to stop writing about that time. And some of it's, you know, because that's where I sort of figured out who I was and as a person, and it's just, my family's all still there and I still go there, you know, I spend summers there and my kids, my family's there. And so, um, but, you know, I don't know that I would say the way that I write is, you know, I studied Faulkner um, as a graduate student. I, I thought I wanted to write Faulkner criticism um, as if we need more of that in the world, um, but, but I didn't do it. Um, I, I sort of applied to one MFA program and said, and a, and a few PhDs for the Faulkner writing. And I said, if I get into an MFA, I'll go do an MFA. And, um, you know, it wasn't that I was turning my back on the idea of Southern literature. I, I just feel as that this is just where I'm from. So um, it doesn't feel like I'm writing in a, and I certainly have nothing, maybe nothing in common with Faulkner in their sentence structures or style. I don't know, maybe I would like to think so. Um, but, but I, I just think it's where I'm from, you know, in the same way, I can't really escape that, that feeling of what it felt like to be there. So you, you mentioned that you're, you live in Portland, Oregon now. Has living in the Pacific Northwest influenced your writing at all? I mean, you, you've just said that you, you're always from Texas, but is that, is that a factor for you writing now? 
I mean, I love it here. It's so beautiful. And I have never in my life lived around trees before. And it's, I find it fascinating. And honestly, I take more pictures of trees, which is ridiculous because we've been here at this point for several years. And so I'm not going anywhere. This is just where I live. And yet I'm still like taking pictures of trees out of my, like it's fall now. So I'm taking pictures of all the trees outside my window. Um, I love the weather. I love the sort of moody rainy days. It makes me feel less guilty about not wanting to take my kids to the park because I can say, I'm mm, sorry, it's raining. We have to stay in and do crafts and read. Um, I, I'm not sure if, you know, I, I'll have a, uh, maybe, you know, as I stay here longer, maybe there'll be some Pacific Northwest stories, but, um, I love the woods. I love going on hikes. I, you know, the play, the part of Texas where I grew up as a young person, I ended up in Dallas for high school. Um, but where I grew up, it was truly just flat, blank, dusty, nothing. And there's something kind of nice about that too, where you can literally walk for 40 minutes and turn around and still see your grandma's house. You know, there's something interesting about that. Um, but there's so much lush life in this landscape here. And it's just, I just love it. So you are also, uh, you have been writing a novel. Will you tell us, can you tell us anything about it? Sure. Um, so it is, a, again, it's a, a woman who is in Texas um, and she is sort of dealing with the death of a, her sibling, um, which has happened before the novel takes place. But whereas everyone in her life seems to be sort of getting over it, she is just finding it impossible to move on. And she's doing something similar to what some of my characters in Blacklight are doing, which is she's playing these sort of weird games with herself to um, process her grief and her loss. And um, she also has a young daughter and she's struggling with this idea of being present in the moment when she's sort of just consumed by this past with her sibling. Um, and also a lot of the novel is sort of set in their teenage years. Um, so it's, it's a lot of the same themes in a lot of ways. Um, and this woman is a sort of psychonaut in the past. She has experimented with psychedelic drugs and found them to be very positive for her. And yet she can't do that anymore because now she has this family and this life and all of the things that she used to do to cope with pain are things that are no longer on the table. And so she's trying to figure out sort of how to make her way um, in her current circumstance. Oh, I, I can't wait for that to uh, be done and be published. It'll be a joy to read. <laughs> So we're almost out of time, Kimberly. This will be my last question. Uh, have you read anything recently that you'd like to recommend to us? So I, there are two books. Jess Arndt's Small Animals um, is a short story collection that was out from Catapult. I think it's probably been a couple of years, but I read it a little bit later. Um, it's just the weirdest, strangest stories that um, the characters who are searching, seekers, they are looking for connection, but there's also this beautiful sort of shape-shifting element where um, characters' genders seem to shift or sway. Um, they're sort of reaching the edges of themselves and characters are changing, their relationships to each other are changing. It's just beautiful and weird, um, which to me is the highest praise. Um, and then Something else, which I just missed it when uh, Anna Burns' Milkman uh, won the Booker, I missed that. And it's, I read it first and then I listened to the audio, which is, you know, read in this beautiful Irish Ulster woman's Irish accent, which is just, I listen to it all the time. I find the way that she turns scenarios over, the way that there will be a sentence that's like, and then I went, I turned left, but I didn't actually turn left, I turned right. And then I turned like this sort of strange turning, turning, turning. And I love it because that's a long book and I'm trying to sort of lean into the differences between short stories and novels. And there's so much space. And what I'm 
also loving about the Anna Burns is there's so much room for contradiction. And so in a short story where I feel like you're almost, you're on a path and you're really trying to be potent in your viewpoint. But what I love about the sort of loose looping, um, tilting, turning of, of Milkman is how, how you can pack in all that contradiction. Um, but those are two books that I've loved lately. Well, thank you so much for those recommendations. Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real, real pleasure. Thank you. This has been really, really fun. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with writer Kimberly King Parsons. She will give a virtual reading as a guest of the University of Oregon's Creative Writing Program on November 11th, 2020. Thanks so much for watching.